Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. We have all heard the story of someone who's having a hard time on their job and feel that he or she is being harassed based on how they perceive their situation and what they see as a source of their misery. In today's suppressed economy and stagnant job market, more and more we find these stories to have a lot more relevancy than your 
typical once or twice a year evaluation bellyaches. More and more employees are feeling the squeeze in positions that they've been comfortable in for years and can't fathom what could have changed in their performance or work environment. There seems to be this understated attitude in the air that whispers, what are you going to do about it? It's tough out there. Look, I could find someone else to do your job for far less money. It's not going to get any better. You know you'll probably get fired, so why don't you just quit? We find that under a great deal of stress and a host of hostile emotions, we find ourselves under the advisement of friends, family, and peers who all too often have nothing more to offer than their own personal opinion. After all is said and done, our true legal rights are misconstrued, misrepresented, and oftentimes a missed opportunity to do the right thing. In the midst of chaos and confusion, all that's really needed is a measure of truth. Carla Brown of Fairfax County, Virginia, earned her undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia in 1996 and received her law degree from George Mason University School of Law in 1999. Ms. Brown is currently admitted to practice in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the District of Columbia, and Maryland. Ms. Brown is also admitted to practice in the federal trial courts in Virginia, the District of Columbia, as well as the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. In 2009, 2010, and 2011, Ms. Brown was recognized in Super Lawyers Magazine as a Virginia rising star. Ms. Brown has litigated cases in state and federal courts throughout Virginia as well as the District of Columbia. Ms. Brown handles contractual matters, including the negotiation and review of severance agreements, covenants not to compete, and employment agreements. Ms. Brown also counsels employees who are subject to workplace harassment, discrimination, and retaliation. Carla Brown, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you for having me. Wow. Well, it's, it's so nice to have you here. And, and, you know, you've got a lot of answers for some questions that a lot of my listeners have had for quite some time. And I know a lot of them have just been buzzing back and forth to the people that are in the room next to them. Oh, my God. You know, I've been in that situation. I wonder what they're going to say. So tell us a little bit about what is workplace harassment and just give us the full overview. Well, workplace harassment can mean a couple of different things. Typically, in, in my practice, when we're looking at workplace harassment, it's when someone targets you because of your race, because of your age, because of your gender, and in some cases because of your sexual orientation, depending on where you work. So it can be treating you differently than people who aren't in your protected class or who are not of the same race as you or who are younger than you or who are male if you're female, or female if you're male. But it's really, the intent there is to allow you to do your job without having unfettered hostility directed at you for no reason other than the status that you're in. Or it can also include um, harassment that results when you complain about how you're being treated. And again, that you're complaining that someone's targeting you because of your protected status. And then as a result, you're punished. Your workload goes up, your money goes down, your bonuses disappear, your per your performance evaluations get worse. But mm -hmm. typically that's what I'm looking at when we're looking at harassment in the workplace. 
And it's a it it's an interesting thing because I think sometimes people refer to harassment as just being treated mean. And unfortunately, that legally doesn't rise to the level, but still is something that employees need counseling to figure out how do they na- navigate the waters of a difficult employer or difficult supervisor. Right, right. You know, now tell us, because you just touched on something, what are some of the common mistakes that people make when faced with workplace harassment? Um, I, I would say a resulting mistake that people almost always make is they get frustrated in their work. They feel very hopeless about what is there for them, and they get concerned that when they complain, you know, I know I have to say most people that I know or that come to me are people who care about their jobs. They were successful in their jobs, and complaining about harassment of any kind, it's a difficult decision for them. They have typically suffered through a couple months of um awful conduct, that they weren't real sure what the underlying cause was, um, and then they get frustrated. You get frustrated, you start to make mistakes at your at your office, which leaves you open for termination. You don't complain enough, which, again, can leave you open to mess up at your job. You feel hopeless, you just want to walk away, which doesn't make any sense. Most of us have mortgages and bills and families to take care of, and there's no reason why when we're doing nothing wrong and someone else is targeting us, we should be the ones to suffer by leaving right. a good-paying job, a job that we may be very good at or that we had other people who would have supported us. It's a it's a difficult thing, but I think most employees really feel that, that sense of helplessness and don't really know how to use the company policies to their benefit and don't really understand that agencies like the EEOC and OFCCP aren't, aren't an avenue of last resort. Right, right. So... Tell us a little bit about how the law is on our side and through some of these resources that we have at our disposal, how we can best utilize them. Well, the first place to start if you're working in a company is start in your company handbook. Company handbooks typically give you more relief than what the law does. Company handbooks typically tell you that the company will not allow employees to be hostile to each other or to be rude to each other. And while that may not be a legal claim in of itself, it's something you should start complaining about while you're at work because your human resources department, if it's helpful to you, has the ability to come in and to help you. And even if they don't help you, you have to start there and you have to complain if you know that policy is there for you. Look to the EEOC. You don't have to wait until you get terminated. Lots of times I have clients who come to me and we file EEOC charges while they're still employed just to get the company to back off them a little bit, to maybe act a little bit more appropriately, and also to get an EEOC investigation started. What employees don't know is when you're working, the EEOC when you file it, has the ability to come in and investigate the claims. And oftentimes, if you're being targeted, that EEOC charge by itself is enough to get the company to think twice about targeting you. So it's certainly a resource that employees should think about using while they are still employed. Um, I'm often involved and behind the scenes when employees are working. If you think that you need counsel, Go get it. Talk to an employment attorney. Talk to somebody who can help you. If you have a friend in HR, talk to somebody in HR who can be helpful to you. But you should really use those um, company policies, the EEOC, and your attorney while you're employed. You know, And, of course, our goals for our employees, most of the time, it's to help you get a little bit of relief at work. It makes you feel less helpless and less like there's nothing you can do. Typically, if you're going to be terminated from the company, no matter what you do, it sets you up to get a good severance package because you have claims that you may um, be willing oh, to yeah. negotiate on. So there there are a lot of recourses for employees. 
um, that they can look to. And frankly, some of your recourse might be looking for another job while you're still employed. Part of buying you some time with those EEOC charges is if it's a company you don't belong at that isn't right for you and that is never going to help you or they just don't get it, they'll never get it. It's a good idea for you to look for to look for a job and to buy yourself some time. It's always easier to find a job when you have a job. Right, right. So a lot of what you're saying is about positioning. And the first thing you said is get yourself some quick relief. And then from there, think about exactly how valuable that job is to you beyond its um, paycheck, whether or not this is the right place for you to be. Absolutely. And if you're an executive or someone who has, you know, stock options, if you have equity interests, you can start planning while you're employed and try to figure out how long do I need to how long do I need to stay here to get this option vested or this particular mm-hmm. benefit vested and if I were to leave, what would I do as far as my health care? But you're so much smarter for planning um while you're employed and I know some people always believe, hey, this is gonna blow over, I don't want to make a big stink out of it. But the truth is if you never complain while you're employed, then you'll never be able to say that the company was targeting you or that you used their policies. So really read the company policies, figure out what you need to do to get relief and if you know the company is never going to help you, if you know the company is complicit, if you know HR is having lunch with the person that you're complaining about and they're just not going to change their tune then you should think about what makes sense for you. Right, right. And what are some of the other steps you should take um, to make sure that your predicament is not swept under the rug? How how do you document these things, and what are the things you should be paying close attention to? Oh, what a good point. Um, documenting it is first and foremost. I can't tell you how many cases we litigate where the employer says, yes, you know, Carla Brown came to me and she told me that she was upset but I understood it to be a personality conflict. What the law says in every state and in every state within the Fourth Circuit is that it's employment at will, which we've all heard, which means you can be terminated for any reason, for no reason, as long as it's not an illegal reason. And in any reason or no reason is that someone just doesn't like you. They don't like your personality. Not that they don't like you because you're a woman and not that they don't like you because of your race, but if they just don't like you, they don't like how you dress, Some of those things aren't necessarily illegal outside of D.C., but some of those things aren't necessarily illegal, but you want to make sure that you're getting your complaints documented. It's not uncommon for an employer to defend a lawsuit by saying, we understood that the person was complaining, but we understood them to be complaining about a personality conflict, which is not illegal. If you're complaining about age or race, you should be writing that in an email. You should be following up with the people you talk to in HR. Thanks for listening to me today about regarding my complaint that I'm being targeted because of my age. Please let me know what the outcome of the investigation is. Let me know if you need anything further from me. Let me know if there's any documents I can provide. Because in litigation, you won't be arguing about what your complaint was. It'll be clear because you wrote it down. So I would say that's that's first and foremost what an excellent point is making sure you document things so that you don't have this um, ambiguity as to what the basis of your complaints were. I would say that would be first and foremost. If you go to HR and you don't get relief, again, go back to your policy. Lots of times there are ethics hotlines that you can call, employee relations hotlines that you can call, and you should utilize those avenues. You know, oftentimes in litigation, an employer will say, well, we had a policy and you didn't follow it. And in litigation, that's a defense for a company. They can have your claim dismissed on the fact that they had a policy that you signed a hand- an acknowledgement that there was a handbook, but then you didn't go back and look at it when you were going through the worst period for you. Mm. 
and so there are you, lots of. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say. So there's there's a there's situations where you can take a step that's far beyond, even though it's you're right, but you didn't take the first step, and it sort of throws things out of order. And again, just like you said, that can become a defense for the employer. Absolutely. Wow. And there are also companies that have peer review panels, i.e. you can have a board of your peers come and review an adverse employment decision taken as to you, whether it was a demotion or a negative review or even a termination. So, you know, what your recourse is is going to be set forth by the company, and you should use that as a guide for how you handle the situation. All right, very well. Um, you know, and one other thing I'm just curious about, and I'm not – I'm not sure. I'm just going to put it out there. Um, is this type of um, harassment that um, sometimes happens to people who uh, are well-established in their position, is it something that companies are doing to sort of force you out because then they can hire someone else that does make you know less money or is newer in that career field and they can sort of cut their losses? Um, it can be. I mean, the difficult thing, particularly with age discrimination, is I think we all understand that the longer you work, the more money you make, which right. isn't necessarily illegal to terminate somebody for an economic reason. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that goes hand in hand with seniority. So what we typically like to think is the longer you've been at a company, the more efficient and profitable you would be. So it would not make sense to terminate you to save a couple of dollars. But does that th- does that happen it probably does happen, and it probably happens with some frequency, but I found that companies that engage in age discrimination or supervisors who engage in age discrimination aren't quite as clever as they would like to be about how they're eliminating people. So, yes, you can be targeted to be taken out of your job, um, and, yes, that can be a reason for harassment, but that doesn't make it any less illegal. And on that same front, I would just say, you know, we've talked about harassment and Retaliation, which are claims in, of, in and of themselves, but in lots of states there are other causes of action that arise under the law that are there to prohibit people who conspire to remove somebody from their job or if you tortiously interfere with somebody's employment expectancy, that can be a separate claim in and of itself. So mm-hmm. you really have to look at what the motivation is and then what methods or means are being used to yeah. um When you say that, that, is it a separate claim outside of harassment, or is it still along those guidelines? It's actually a separate claim. And Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, which is the areas where we practice, each of them has a claim for tortious interference with business expectancies. Each one has a claim for civil conspiracy. Virginia has a statutory conspiracy. So there are other civil claims that would apply to conduct in the employment industry. And if somebody is telling making false statements about the work that you're doing with the intent to move you out can give rise to defamation. So Mm. there are a lot of different causes of actions. I mean, in my work, it's not uncommon for us to have, under federal law, a harassment claim, a retaliation claim, coupled with a civil conspiracy claim or even negligent retention of a supervisor that allows this damage to result to you. So there are a lot of different avenues where an employee can deal with a situation where they're being targeted for a reason other than poor performance. Wow. Okay. 
Well, that's really good information. And, um, you know, I think that most people, even when they, they hear the term harassment, of course, they focus directly on and immediately to sexual harassment. And even in sexual harassment, there are some more broad-based ways that that can occur that aren't directly related to someone who physically makes you uncomfortable or makes direct um, contact with you in being the harasser. So give us an idea of some of those other ways, too, that um, you could be a victim of sexual harassment that's, you know, maybe someone wouldn't think that that falls in that category. Um, for sexual harassment, you know, if someone's telling jokes around you that are inappropriate, if I'm uh, I'm female, if someone's making a lot of, you know, comments about, you know, female anatomy or they're displaying pictures of females in positions that are inappropriate or that are sexual, I mean, that can be sexual harassment. And then separate for gender discrimination, um, which falls along the same lines, is if somebody's creating a hostile work environment for you based on your gender, for example, I'm going to a business dinner and they decide that the appropriate venue for that is a strip club and I'm female, I don't want to go there. I find that mm -hmm. to be offensive. Mm -hmm. But you can have a lot of different ways that it comes up. If you're a female and you feel like you're being targeted because of that, then that can give rise to harassment claims. Um, certainly I've had cases where people make statements to females or males telling them, like, hey, this is a male industry, this is a good old boys network. I hear that time after time. Somebody says, how are you making it in this industry? This is really a good old boys network. So you can be targeted that way as well, just, you know, making you feel like you're incompetent in your job when you're not. You know, typically a lot of these people are people who are top performers, but a man or a woman is intimidated that they're also working in that position. Wow, yeah. And um, it's interesting, though, that um, we we only hear in the news those claims, you know, that have sexual harassment, and that seems to be the buzzword. And this has been going on for quite some time. Now, tell us some of the other ways, or if you can, just give us a broad-based way of maybe some ways that you've helped people or situations that um, listeners can sort of hear and get an idea of you know, how they may fall into a category when they thought that they were only in a situation that it comes up every now and then, but they're able to deal with it, but they really don't think that they have a case, so to speak. It's just something that they're just going to have to suffer through. Um, in the context of sexual harassment or just in overall harassment? Yeah, just in overall harassment. Um. You know, the best way, I think, to approach it if you're in a situation with harassment is to make a chronology of what has happened to you and when it has happened. I think a lot of times, just like you said, people sort of feel like, yeah, well, that was an inappropriate comment or this situation was bad or, hey, they never let women work, you know, as foremen in the front. You know, I'd like to do that, but I don't know if I can. Is In my experience, when you start to write things down and you write them down in chronological order, things really present themselves as being egregious to you, you know, and when we work a job every day, part of our um, self-preservation is not focusing on everything that is shocking or that is um, unbelievable. So you almost forget, and I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come here and tell me about one meeting they had the day before they got terminated where somebody yelled at them and screamed at them and said a lot of inappropriate things. And I have to ask them, you know, a hundred times before they can give me the other hundred things that happened before that meeting because your brain sort of gets stuck on that last mm -hmm. thing that happened. 
and for the things that happened before, you almost forget them. So I think if you're wondering whether you are a victim of harassment, if I were you, I would write down the things that gave rise to that question in your mind. And when you look at them on a cumulative spectrum, it may become more clear to you. Yeah, and I think another thing people need to understand as well is they need to document every direction or course they took in order to try to resolve it as well and everyone that they came in contact with in trying to um, seek help. Absolutely. I mean, most handbooks say complaining to your manager at least should start the process and that most managers have an obligation to report situations up the chain of command. So, you know, it's while you want to always make sure you follow the policy, you know, you want to use common sense, too. The place where you would start if you had a problem, if you had a good relationship with somebody, is there. If it's your manager's manager, start there. If it's not your own manager, perhaps you have a colleague or a peer that you can report things to or or talk to about what's going on. Right. And um, give us a little help. Um, what language should we be using in order to address these concerns? Are there certain words that will be more helpful than others? Well, the law tells us there are no magic words to report discrimination. I mean, you don't have to go in and say, I think I'm the victim of, you know, 42 U.S.C. 2000E at SEC. I mean, you're not required to do that. But if it's a you know, again, this brings us back to what are you complaining about? If it's a personality conflict, it's not illegal. So if it's the fact that men are treated better than you or that it seems that your Caucasian colleagues are promoted more quickly than you, then that's what you need to say. I mean, HR is there, and you need to give them enough to put them on notice that the investigation that they do um, should be one that is based on a protected category. You know, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act came out, a lot of the litigation started in 2004 for that, and that really says for companies that are publicly traded, if you have a concern about how they're managing their budget or they're not properly disclosing certain things to shareholders, you just need to say enough so that a department or a company understands the basis of your complaint. You don't have to cite the statute. But, you know, again, this comes back to thinking while you're employed, what are you really complaining about? And part of being harassed is that you think someone doesn't like you, but you can't stop your analysis at that by itself. So at what point and what should be um, a clear indication that um, you're spinning your wheels and you ought to, you know, go ahead and seek legal representation? Is Are there certain... Um, Things that, uh, or is there maybe a, um, a benchmark for that? I don't know that there's a fine line benchmark, but most people have an inkling that something is coming down the pike for them. When mm. you get a performance improvement plan or a write up or a negative performance evaluation, the company most likely is going to defend any subsequent claim that you make by saying the reason you're now complaining is because you know that you have performance deficiencies. So to the extent that you can get ahead of those and that you can get your complaints in before you get negative evaluations, it is better for you um, from a legal perspective. But it makes sense for you from a common sense perspective. Why not get the process going before somebody's documented a lot of deficiencies on you that may or may not be true? I've had uh, several clients who have friends who sort of say, FYI, just so you know, this, this, and this have been said about you or this is going on. But I do find that employees often 
we have a good sense of something on the way. I have lots of people come to me who say, I just feel like my employer is not treating me appropriately. And if you can complain before you suffer what they call an adverse employment action, meaning you get a bad review, you get denied your bonus, you get denied a raise for the year. Hey, I love representing employees when I can say the person was a star performer. They got raises and bonuses every year. They got good performance evaluations. Um, they got commendations from people within the company. When you start waiting around, I can no longer say those things. It makes you look not as stellar as of an employee. And an element of any claim is that you were doing your job duties well. So now I have to argue about what that means for you to be doing your job duties well, which I wouldn't have had to do if you had complained appropriately. Wow. But, you know, again, it's not an easy question for the employee either. If I'm doing a great job at my job, I'm getting raises and bonuses, but I sort of feel like I'm targeted. The reason there are retaliation laws is because retaliation does happen. So it's sort of a pause. You know, you have to really weigh that. Do I want to complain? Am I going to get retaliated against? Or if I don't complain, am I not going to be able to come back later on? and say something about the retaliation. It's not an easy question, yeah. in my view. And, and tell us some of the major mistakes that people do make, though, and um, how the situation could have been much better if they would have um, taken the right course of action as opposed to, for instance, reacting emotionally and um, just blowing up when they can hardly take anymore. Um, for Women who suffer sexual harassment, sexual assault in the workplace, I have noticed that a lot tend to just leave the situation. They're too afraid to complain. They've been put in a situation where they were left um, without really any hope or they worked for someone bad. In, in a lot of environments, the HR policy or system is, you know, to say it's broken would be an overstatement. And mm -hmm. I think they women in those situations tend to just leave, which makes it more difficult because now we're arguing about whether this person left because they didn't do their job well or whether they left because they were afraid to go back. I would say for people who suffer physical contact, that is definitely a common thing that I see. They just get scared and leave. Um, and then for other employees, I think they get frustrated. You know, they look for another job. And then to me, when I have an employee who gets another job and they're in a job situation that's bad, that's sort of, that's Yahtzee in my book because, of course, mm. now they have none of those reservations about complaining and telling the company what they were suffering because if they get fired, oh, well, they're going to another job. Um, but if you are an employee who's doing that, why would you tell the company you're going to another job? Why don't you, you can play the gambler with that and play a little bit of poker. So, I think biggest mistake employees don't make is they don't think about how they're approaching things on the way out the door, which a lot of times can be to their benefit. I think if an employee is treated ter terribly at work and they get another job, that's not going to kill my request for severance. I may or may not tell the company that the person's working. The company may not ask. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't change the fact that they were suffering the job for a long time. It may cut off their ability to ask for payment into the future, but it doesn't affect what they dealt with. And I think employees don't think about that, and they make a lot of concessions or say a lot of things to the company. And, hey, nobody is perfect. So the company is going to find something that you did that they don't like, even if it's that you left the water on in the bathroom in 1982. That will now be <laughs> the biggest issue that they have ever seen. Or the fact that a budget that you've done every year very well was done two days late this year, despite the fact that it was done, you know, 12 days late every other year, they'll find something. And some of it is just posturing yourself and figuring out how you handle those. And 
for employees that are at companies, you have a good sense of management, you know, who's calling the shots, you know. Sometimes there are money makers the company knows are acting badly, but they're really, they'd rather pay you to leave than do anything about this particular person. So I think really playing the politics and making a strategy, I mean, you almost have to play chess with everything in life, including how you leave a company or what you do while you're at the company. It can dictate what claims you may have going forward. Right. And and I would say the other biggest problem is not complaining, you know, trying to be political about the complaint that you make and not make anyone too mad so you don't actually give them the reason or put them on notice of what your particular complaint is. And again, right. they're going to come back and they're going to say, we understood her to be complaining that they didn't work well together, but wow, we had no idea that she was complaining about, you know, something that was illegal. Mm. See, it seems to me like you're you're telling us that um you know that the first one that draws the line in the sand has the upper hand in a situation like that, and um you know you really have to take control from the very beginning and um tell us uh, how does the person separate themselves because a lot of people still see them, they love their jobs, they still see themselves in that career in that location but that may not be an option after the fact tell us about how one can really separate themselves and and plan on making that move and knowing that um where they're at right now is a lost cause and it's time to move forward test the market it's always a great thing to do test start testing the market start planning your exit and again like i said when you get another job you know your ability to negotiate and to sort of force your hand at the job that you're sitting in changes a lot. I mean, when I meet people and they're still employed, we always have that conversation about whether they want to look for another position. And sometimes they can't. You know, they can have stock vesting next year and they don't want to leave or they've got benefits that make them, you know, not want to leave. But I would say first course for any employee is testing the waters. I've had employees who... um, made some statements that were inappropriate about how management worked because they were frustrated in their jobs. And uh, you're frustrated, look for another job, see what's out there. Um, To me, that's going to be your first course of action because the truth is, as much as you think that people love you, right, this is like every supervisor thinks everyone who reports to them thinks they're the best thing in the world, right? And that's never the case. But for employees, you may not have the option to stay in your job. And if by the time they've gotten to me, something raised a concern to you that it was worth it for you to come see me. And right. I think that to me indicates that it's probably time for you to think more globally about what your next steps are going to be. Um, we do. My firm is a firm where we charge people for the initial meeting, and we do that because we want them to think about whether or not they're just want to have a conversation about maybe they might leave at some point or whether they're serious. So I know that people who come to see me by the time they get here felt like there was a real concern. So it's an easy conversation to have. What does your future look like at the company? But as far as distinguishing yourself, that would be your first step. See what's out there for you. I mean, while I say whoever draws the line, you know, while it's true whoever draws the line in the sand first wins, you know, it's also true that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You can set up any legal claim you want to, but no ethical attorney will guarantee you an outcome at trial that you like. So if you have a good job, your first focus should be trying to stay in that job, which is why I say it's not easy for people to complain. Right. While it has to be done, it's a it's a balancing act. Um, people make a business judgment all the time that they're going to put up with things that are would not be acceptable to a third party because they're concerned about how that might look going forward. So... It's a, I think it's a, it's a difficult balancing act and it requires a careful consideration of 
the person's situation, what's coming along, what brought them to my door. Um, but I don't know that there's an easy answer, even a bright line answer on that. Right, right. And um, I think what we would like to know at this point, so we do find ourselves in the office of an attorney for representation. Try to walk us through some of the things that you do and, and you know, some of the phases that would have to transition um, because it could be a long process and it could be a short process. So just give us an idea how those could vary based on um, what you're able to work through in the in the process. Typically, by the time you come to see someone at my firm or me, um, you would have com- completed and submitted to us at least a document that gives us an overview of what you think your situation is. Um, and I like to use that to prepare for the meeting that I'm having with you because my goal in the meeting is to figure out what do you want, is it realistic, why do I think it is or isn't realistic, and to create a strategy on how we go forward. Um, so if you're in a meeting with an attorney, typically we would want to hear, has anything happened since I got that original submission from you? Is there anything in the submission that you weren't comfortable putting? Because lots of people are worried about what they submit over email. Um, I try to identify the claims that you might have or tell you why I think there are no claims there. And if there are claims, explain to you um, as best I can in a way that you might understand what the elements of those claims are, what do you have to prove in order to maintain a claim. I try to be honest and tell people if I think that they're going to have trouble maintaining an element of the claim to find out from them what they think the employer's counter position would be on the claims and to do as much as I can an assessment in the meeting as to whether I think that sounds like a defense that a court would be receptive to. And then considering those issues, I, people always ask me, okay, okay, give me give a 1 to 10, 1 to 10, where do you think this claim is? <laughs> or alternatively, you know, 1 to 100%. I mean, what percentage do you think I have? What percent chance do you think I have of winning? And the difficult thing is, you know, I guess lawyers and politicians, but I can't give you a straight answer on that because a lot of things depend on what judge you get, what court we file in. And then even if I know all of that, questions for a jury. And I always tell people the biggest witness in this case is going to be you. If we get started in litigation and everything looks great and you get deposed and you're the worst witness I've ever seen, unfortunately, I have to tell you that. And it's going to change the way your claim is approached. So I guess a a realistic expectation of what's going forward and also cost. Someone needs to talk to you about what it costs to go forward in litigation. Sometimes people tell me, I just want my day in court. I just want to litigate this. I just want to make myself known. And those things are fine, but there's a cost that's associated with that. So you Mm -hmm. kind of have to weigh what makes sense for you in the situation. And there's no reason for you to complain and and, um, become a nuisance at a job if you didn't do a good job at the job. So if you come to me and you tell me this is your third write-up or your fourth write-up, you know, over the course of 10 years, and it sounds to me like the company was working with you, I I have to tell you that, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I have to say, a lot of people that I do meet who are the victims of some harassment, I find it incredible. I meet them, and when I see them, they sort of they feel hopeless, they're crying, you know, they might be even sick. Um, and then when I see them a couple months later, for whatever reason, even if they're picking up the materials they dropped off to me, it's like a different person. You know, you really see that progression because they sort of have gotten their bearings and don't feel quite so helpless, in part because they planned early. Um 
but I would think for an attorney, you really want to talk about what your strategy is, what are your goals, and you know whether it's feasible. I mean, if you tell me, look, my brother in California heard about a judgment where somebody got $6 million for the same conduct, and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking that's not a chance going to happen in Virginia, you know, I feel like I have to tell you that too, and maybe I'm not the best attorney for you if that's what you want because I can't, you're not going to be happy at the end of the day if you ask me for something I know is not feasible and I don't tell you. I'd rather you go see someone else. Wow. Do you often find that you have people walk into your office who are more concerned about dollar amounts as opposed to uh, reconciliation? Um, well, sometimes, yes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I just want to put it out there and be honest, because people, you know, when they hear this, sometimes that's what they're thinking as well. But, you know, this is this is real. And, again, just like you said, there's a cost associated with this. This isn't something that you'd want to do um, unless you really had an issue. And you did your homework and, and did the things that you suggested as far as uh, documenting your claim and um, being able to um, speak clearly also about why you feel that you've been, um, you know, treated wrongly. So, and as you said, if you're not a good witness, you're going to let them know. So, you know, those things are important. And um, I think that this is something that everyone should think about. Um, but for those of you who are suffering, um, know that there are some things that you can do on your own as well to be able to help your situation, just as you said, with the EEOC. Now, a lot of times these cases don't necessarily have to end up in court. So tell us about some of the other ways, too, that they can be resolved. Um, your employer, assuming you're leaving a company, lots of time. Well, if you're at a company, your employer could work out a remedy that works for you. I find that that is most often not the case, although I have had some smart companies who, who transition you to something um, where you can continue to do your job. But let's be honest, it's hard to move around in a company. Um, and when you're leaving a company... Typically, companies will offer you a severance package, and that's a great opportunity for you to negotiate or, more, or in my case, for me to come in and try to negotiate for you. Look, if they offer you X when they don't know you have claims or when you've you know, reported claims to them, the value of that release or the money that they'll pay you to dismiss your claims or to not bring them tends to go up when you get an attorney involved and you have real claims. So that's a great opportunity right there to negotiate a severance package on your way out of the door. Um, even after claims are filed, there's an opportunity to do mediation, which means you bring in a third party and typically a retired judge, and they sit down, the plaintiff who's bringing the claim and the defending corporation, and talk to them You know, over the course of the day. They just go back and forth and try to get a number that would resolve the claim. Um and then you have some courts that order you to go to that process. And then, quite frankly, there are some claims in the employment context that don't make it to trial, but they get dismissed out by the judge or by the court. So claims typically get resolved one of those ways. Either it's never brought and it's resolved, or maybe it's mediated during the case, and otherwise it's tried, or alternatively it gets dismissed out. Oh, Okay. Well, um, in those situations, too, um, is that as good a resolution as um, having to go all the way to court? I'm sure it could be more cost-effective because your your fees will be a lot less. 
Um, it can be, and depending on what it is, you know, employees oftentimes have leverage. If I'm an employee at a company and I think that I am uh, the only female African-American director they've ever had on a big project that has a lot of visibility and optics, if I'm claiming that I was treated inappropriately, the company may have some resolution and some interest in resolving that with me before it goes public. Once it goes public, they might take the position that they're going to defend it because they don't want people to think it's true. So sometimes you can get more money resolving it before it's filed than you can afterwards. You know, I always hear this um, take on the thought that there should be tort reform or that claims should be narrowed for people bringing them. I have to say, for a lot of claims, there is an element of your personal life that lives out there. For victims of sexual assault and sexual um, harassment in the workplace, they, they are per employers are permitted to dig a little bit about your life. And if you're claiming that there is emotional distress, that you're upset mentally, they're permitted to look at your medical records and to explore whether other bad things in your life could possibly have given rise to the distress that you feel. Mm. So... To me, you know, I, I think of it not just in money but in human capital, and I think you don't have that much human capital in this lifetime, and spending it having, you know, your OB records from five years ago and some minor procedure you had asked to you in a deposition with other bad guys sitting in the room has a real cost. And wow. I think in litigation, you know, people need to know before they proceed that this is a really tough thing. People who have been on your side will turn against you. People who want their 15 minutes of fame will make up and say things that are not true. So just absent, I mean, certainly there's an opportunity to get almost as much money in a settlement, but there's also a value in settlement that is not going through trial. And again, as an attorney, as any attorney, you know, a jury could love you. They could think that you're the best plaintiff in the world. They could think that the conduct is the worst they've ever heard of. And then they could award you $10,000 because they think that's a lot of money. So even if you win, you know, the the possibility that you may win is not a certain one. And even if you win, getting what you think is appropriate amount, I mean, you know, you could be somebody who makes $250,000 a year and you get terminated and you feel like you've been treated terribly. Well, your juror could make $20,000 a year and think that, you know, 40000 is a lot of money. So there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of incentive. To me, you can ask for things in settlement. I commonly ask for sexual harassment victims that the company put together some kind of training to explain to managers what sexual harassment is, how they should respond to it and to put some more concrete mechanisms in place to protect people. Almost every victim I've ever had of sexual harassment, that in some ways is more important to them than money, and it's not something that the court can award to you. So if you proceed with litigation, the court can't do that for you. Right. Hmm. Wow. So, that 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 is just... You just took me all the way around the block on that and just, you know, outlining some of these situations that you've dealt with. And, um, you know, even with, with you saying that um, in this, a corporation can still continue to harm you in the course of litigation by, you know, digging up dirt on you and trying to use these things against you and making them public. Yeah, that that's a lot to think about for most folks. It is. I mean, and it's not always the case, but, you know, it's not uncommon. I mean, I had a, uh, mm -hmm. I had a, probably one of the 
nicest people that I'll ever meet and probably one of the worst situations that I've heard of tell me that every time she saw our firm telephone number come on her cell phone, she started to have a little panic attack because at the end of the day, there are weeks that if I'm your attorney, I'm calling you, telling you, hey, we're not going to win every motion and, you know, hey, that document that we didn't want to produce, the judge says we have to turn it over and it can be very, very stressful. It's very vindicating, you know, at times too, but it's like a roller coaster. Mm. And oh, if you wow. win, if you win, it's worth it. If you don't, it's you know it's painful. Absolutely, and um, being in that situation and then losing can be devastating. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and you know, like I said, I think your attorney owes it to you to be honest with you. But sometimes you look at conduct that's really, really unfair. But for whatever technical reason, you've got a lot of risk at litigation, whether it's the fact that the person didn't look at the policy and didn't comply, and that could be an affirmative defense, or whether the person was too scared to go back to work, and now we have to argue about whether they were appropriate, whether they should have come back and complained. I mean, you know, not, no situation is perfect, and there's never litigation. There's never any of us, you know, as humans who don't have some fault that would leave us open if, if six attorneys on the other side were looking for it every day for 10 hours a day. Um, so <clears throat> certainly I think litigation is hard on people, and, you know, we're counselors as much as we're attorneys, and we try to tell people to hold, to hang in there. But if you're in litigation, you're going to have your days. I mean, you just are. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're just going to find out a little bit more about Carla Brown. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I want to take a quick minute to talk to you about Young Lives. Young Lives is a unique, cutting-edge, nonprofit Christian organization designed to empower and equip pregnant and parenting teen moms to become productive citizens in the community, a program that partners teens and mature Christian women to provide teen girls in crisis with timely encouragement, guidance, and ongoing support. Through the power of presence, Kids and teens' lives are dramatically impacted when caring adults come alongside them, sharing God's love. Because someone believes in them, they begin to see that their lives have great worth, meaning, and purpose. This is just the first step of a lifelong journey. The choices they make today, based on God's love for them, will impact their future decisions, the careers they choose, the marriages they form, and the families they raise. All of this can be traced back to the time when a young life leader reached out and entered their world. Your support will provide girls with an opportunity to attend parenting classes, summer camp, and empowerment programs that just might change their lives. To learn more, visit their website at younglivesdc.younglife.org or call the regional director, Sharon Holland, at 202-399-7017. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and we're talking with legal counsel Carla Brown. And tell us a little bit about you and your rise to fame. (laughs) Wow. I definitely wouldn't call it a rise to fame. Um, I I guess the only thing I can say about um, what I do is I feel like I'm very lucky. I I think I probably have one of the um, best positions. I'm one of the few plaintiff attorneys who represent individuals in Virginia and D.C. and um, Maryland. I was very lucky in my start. I was able to work with a woman who is the architect of employee rights claims in Virginia to the extent that they actually exist. Um, 
and uh, I think I have a lot of passion about what I do, and I certainly care a lot about employees. I think we actually, I think I get to make a difference um, to people, and I really like doing it. And I have to say, I my work is the one thing that I feel sometimes is is not work, and people are very appreciative when things go well for them. Wow, wow. And you're being very modest. Um, you know, named as a super lawyer three years in a row, as well as um, being a partner at your firm. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, that that is a rare occurrence. You, you seem to be very young. <laughs> oh, no. Do I sound young? No, um, no. I've seen your pictures. <laughs> well, like I said, you know, I mean, a lot of things in this life are sort of as much about you know, working hard as they are about being a little bit lucky, too. And I'm very fortunate. You know, I really I feel like this is, in my former life, I represented corporations doing some things. And, you know, from time to time, we still help corporations. I'm not suggesting that they're all bad. Um, but even when I represented corporations, I felt a lot of times employees wanted to tell me the nitty-gritty. I don't know if it's because of the way I look or the way I um, approach things, but I feel like this side is is much better for me. And um, coming up, I was just very lucky to join with a mentor who really helped me and who's made a difference to a lot of people. And I'm at a firm that's a not traditional one, um, that we definitely look at just merit at the end of the day. And um, not to say that other firms don't, but I feel like this is the right place for me to be, I'm, that I'm sure of right now. Wow, wow. And, you know, we've got a caller on the line. Um, caller, uh, you're on the line right now, so give us your name and tell us where you're calling from. I'm talking to you, caller. Your last four numbers, 4192 of your telephone number. Okay, I, I guess they're just shy. <laughs> they just don't realize that they're on the line. Maybe they thought I was talking with someone else. But, um, yeah, we wanted to hopefully give someone an opportunity to ask a question. Um, one more chance, caller. You're still there. I see you. <laughs> okay, next time. Well, maybe you could just send an email to a measure of truth at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to forward any questions or comments that you might have. And, um, Carla, just tell us a little bit more um, about your, your background and about your firm in itself. And um, if people really like what you had to say and they, they wanted to contact with you and they feel that they have a situation that they would like to share with you, um, is there any contact information that you want to put out there for our listeners? Uh, sh sure. I, I'll put my uh, telephone number out there, which is 703-318-6800. Um, and we have a website, which is www.cisincharliebeisinboy.com, which is our firm website, um, which I'm listed on. As far as our firm, I think we are and have been for several, probably decades, uh, the preeminent firm for plaintiff's employment law and for helping individuals and small businesses respond to claims. Um, we don't do anything other than employment law. We don't do anything other than help employees and small businesses. So um, in, a, in a nutshell, you know, sometimes I say being a plaintiff's lawyer in Virginia is a little like beating your head against the wall. Um, sometimes you feel like you're not making progress. Um, but it's very rewarding, and a lot of people who come see us really do need help. And um, 
I, I feel, again, very, very lucky to do what I do. And, you know, I had a son this year. Um, oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you very much. And his name was Evan, but he had a heart condition and he didn't survive. Oh, sorry. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, if I didn't know already, you know, I definitely see that the service that you provide to people can make a, a big difference. And I think about the hospital providers who helped you know, my son and my husband and I when we were in there. And I really try to approach my own job by listening a little bit more and trying to go the extra mile and just kind of reassuring people and letting them know that they've been heard because I feel like a lot of times when you're in a situation where your employer refuses to listen to you and nobody will help you, sometimes you just need to know that someone is listening to you and they're working hard for you. And I try to communicate as frequently as I can with people and to sort of let them know that I'm here and that I'm serious about trying to get a resolution because at the end of the day I feel like if there's something there I, I think I can get there if we can just cooperate and work together and and try to see and I think part of it is just working hard and not being in a hurry for yourself so I'm not sure my husband would like that but <laughs> it makes me late every now and then but um yeah certainly it makes a big difference in how you approach things and how I look at people and you know knowing I've been sitting there depending completely on someone else's advice and counsel in in a situation I wasn't familiar with you know I think about what that's like for people who come in and are really scared about how things are going to go forward and taking care of their families and paying their bills so yeah yeah well, well I thank you for that and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your passion as well for what you do that it's really based on your concern for people and um, doing your job well and excellence, and uh, that's very commendable. And um, yeah, I, I'm really happy you share that with us. And um, you know, um, our prayers are with you and peace and blessings and uh, on the loss of your your son. And I know that can be a very traumatic thing, and it's a it's a longstanding um, healing process. That, but um, yeah, and well, it was just. Phenomenal talking with you. I mean, this was a great show. So much information. And um, I think we all learned quite a bit. And you presented and educated us uh, in in a very, very pleasant way. And um, just really appreciate you taking time out and, um, you know, being able to share all of this information, which, you know, for an attorney, that's some valuable stuff. I mean, good grief, an hour with you must cost a mint. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. And maybe we can um, hear back from you again in the near future when something um, is more urgent out there in the news or a big case. Maybe you can help us to see clearly about some of the things that are unreported or we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So, yeah, that that would be just great. Well, Carla, well, thank you again for joining us. And I really appreciate you taking time out. And um, we just hope to hear from you again real soon. Thank you so much. Have a great evening and a good Halloween. You too. Thank you very much. Okay. If I may paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds too no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things 
lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away and use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you like you're crazy, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? Is when the secret stays locked within and you can't get it out. Not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, if you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that in most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm here. And I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of truth. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.